Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with a man is possible for God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or teachers for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age of to come eternal life. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to all of you who came out in this weather and got here at our first service today. We're delighted to have you here. Welcome also to those of you joining us online. Great to have you uh, with us. And um, by the way, for those of you, whether you're here or online, I want to take a moment to recommend to you our church YouTube channel, uh, not for an alternative to being here on Sunday morning, but for the classes that you can watch during the week. Um, we have a class on marriage going on right now during our second service, and I had the opportunity to watch last Sunday's class taught by Scott Mary Jones on communication and marriage, and it was fantastic. So if you're not watching some of our stuff on our YouTube channel, I want to recommend that to you. Uh, some really, really good classes being taught there. Before we get into the message today, I'd like to ask you to look just for a moment at our vision frame. I think the best way to learn about who we are as a church is by understanding our vision frame. And I want to call you to the values on the left, uh, to, to your attention to the values on the left side of the frame this morning. The top one, Bible-centered. I stress this because in January and February, we typically have more new people coming to our church than at other times of the year. And one of the most important things you can know about our church is that we believe all scripture is inspired by God. And we base the ministry of our church on the teaching of the Bible. That's why as you look at the marks at the top, these are things that we hope will be developed in the lives of the people who come to our church. Bible understanding is one of those. So whether it's for our, our preschoolers in Noah's Ark, our elementary kids in Kids Rock, our youth who are returning this morning from a uh, ski retreat in the mountains or here in the sanctuary, we base our teaching, our ministry, what we hope to impart to people upon the scripture, the Bible, the word of God. If you read our vision 2025, and I hope you will if you've not read it before, the very first words of the vision read this way. In the year 2025, River Oaks is known as a church where people have a strong knowledge of the Bible joined with active compassion for those outside of the church. 
These two should always go together. Knowledge of Scripture and compassion for people in need. Compassion for people who don't know the Lord. Compassion for people outside of the church. And I'm reminded just to say a word of thanks to those of you who recently participated in one of the displays of compassion our church does at this time of year, our Love Your Neighbor campaign. Understand you all gave a, a large number of blankets and coats and Pastor Sonny Flower says they were taken to the Salvation Army and all of them were used in just over 24 hours. So thank you for that. But this is the basis of our ministry, the teaching of Scripture. I read an article last week from Christianity Today magazine uh, citing information from the American Bible Society. I was struck by this. You'll see it on the screen, just an excerpt from the Christianity Today article that Bible reading in the United States actually dropped dramatically in 2022. It's unclear why. Roughly 50% of American adults reported opening Scripture at least three times a year from 2011 to 2021, and I think you'd agree with me, that's a pretty low standard for being a Bible reader. Uh, Bible reading dropped, and if that's the standard, that's a low standard, opening the Bible three times a year. Um, but then in 2022, the number declined from 50% to 39% in one year. That means amid record inflation, threats of nuclear war in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and ongoing debates about the state of democracy, there were about 26 million Americans who stopped reading the Bible or at least stopped opening it three times a year. More than half of Americans say they wish they read the Bible or read it more, however, creating an opportunity for Christians to invite their neighbors to deeper engagement with God's Word. Younger people, in particular, say they are drawn to Bible reading plans and Bible studies that look at whole chapters or complete stories. We are a Bible centered church, and I hope you're growing in your knowledge of Scripture, and I certainly hope you're opening your Bible more than three times a year. <laughs> I hope you're reading it every day, and I think there's a hunger in the world around us. They just want to see Scripture lived out in the lives of the people around them, and we are to be witnesses to those around us in our nation. Would you join me as we pray again this morning? Father, we come before you today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge, Lord, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for the gift of Scripture, your holy word. Would you open the eyes of our understanding so that we would behold the truth that you have put in your word. Please guide us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And Lord, as we're gathered here worshiping you, I'm reminded that our students are gathered up into the mountains worshiping you this morning. Would you pour out your spirit upon them? Would you bring them home safely to us today? And we ask these things in your great name, Lord. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at two passages of scripture in the Gospel of Luke. One in Luke 18 that Anne Hakim read for us just a moment ago the other in Luke chapter 19. Each passage presents a conversation that Jesus had with someone who was rich. 
Each passage deals with eternal salvation. And yet each of the two interactions with Jesus end with a very, very different result. Let's look at the first one of those. Jesus' conversation with a rich man. The Gospel of Matthew adds that he was a young man. He's sometimes referred to as the rich ruler, this young ruler. The first thing we see in this conversation Jesus had with this young ruler was that the rich ruler recognized Jesus as good teacher. In the passage Ann read a moment ago, this ruler comes to Jesus, initiates the conversation, and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives a reply that's a little bit unusual. He says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, that may raise a question when you read it. Is Jesus saying he's not God? Because we teach and believe here and have taught many times that Jesus is God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he is deity. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Jesus was not saying there that he was not deity, that he was not God. In a veiled way, he was saying that he was and is God. He's pointing this young man to the reality that he is God the Son, the Son of God. Jesus then goes on to say to the young man, you know the commandments, and Jesus lists five of them. Don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Jesus lists five of the Ten Commandments that have to do with our relationship with other people. He does not mention the ones that are Godward. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or on earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He doesn't mention those. He points to five of the commandments, and then the rich ruler thought he'd kept all God's commandments, as we read in the next verse. He immediately says to Jesus, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, this young man must not have heard Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, because if he had heard Jesus teaching there, he would know that Christ associated, equated lustful intent with committing adultery. Christ equated hatred in the heart with committing murder. And by the standard that Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount, we're all guilty of breaking these commandments. But the young ruler says, all these I've kept from my youth. We immediately see that the young man is somewhat lacking in humility. Just prior to the account of this conversation, Luke has given us Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And the Pharisee is simply, essentially prays, God, I thank you that I keep the law. I keep all the commandments. The tax collector prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said the tax collector is the one who went down to his home justified, the one who recognized his need. But it's quite clear that the young ruler is, is lacking in humility, thought he kept all the commandments. Jesus then identified the rich ruler's idol. We read these words. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack. 
Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus looked at the young man and he knew there was something keeping him from a genuine commitment to following him and that was his wealth. The Bible said, the passage read a moment ago, he was extremely rich. One thing you lack, sell all you have, distribute to the poor, come follow me. Jesus didn't tell everyone to come follow him, but he gave this young man an extraordinary opportunity. Come and follow me. Jesus saw that the wealthy young man had an interest in Christ. He wanted to have eternal life, but he had a serious problem, and that was that his wealth meant more to him than God in God's kingdom. And then we see that the rich ruler could not give up his idol, his wealth, to enter the kingdom of God. When he, the rich ruler, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Seeing that he had become sad, Jesus then says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says here famously, these words, which are very, very challenging, after saying it's how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were shocked when he said it, because in Jewish understanding, the more wealthy a person was, the more blessed they were by God. And so they say, then who can be saved? He said, that is Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It's a sobering conversation. Raises a question, do you and I have to sell everything we possess to enter the kingdom of God? No, I don't think so. I do think we must be willing to if God were to tell us to. Does this passage mean that a wealthy person cannot enter the kingdom of God? Not at all. Only that it requires the grace of God as it does for every person, rich or poor, to enter the kingdom of God. The things that are impossible with man are possible with God. One reason I want to look at another passage immediately following this and to compare and contrast these two passages is that Jesus is about to have another conversation with another rich man. And this rich man is a wealthy chief tax collector. And I'd like to read this account now, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Tax collectors were often Jews who worked for the Roman government collecting taxes from the Jews, known to skim money for themselves. A chief tax collector would have been one over other tax collectors. Uh, if you've seen, any of you seen the Chosen uh, series on TV, you know Matthew, the tax collector. He's well off, but he's despised, isn't he, by many of the other Jews because he's a tax collector. Matthew's got his own nice house. He's well off far wealthier than his parents, but he's despised by many of the Jews for that reason. Well, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector over other tax collectors. He was rich, 
And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also was a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now here's what's striking. Here's a rich man who's saved. Here's a rich man who doesn't give away everything he possesses. Jesus did not tell him to do that, as he told the rich young ruler. In fact, the passage doesn't say Jesus said anything to him at all about his wealth. Zacchaeus, of his own initiative, chooses to say, hey, Lord, I'm giving half my goods to the poor if I've defrauded anybody. And we have to chuckle there because we assume that, yes, he's defrauded some people and he knows he has. If I've defrauded anybody, I'll give them four, return it fourfold. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is to look at these two passages side by side. Because one ends in a man going away without eternal life. And the other ends in a rich man gaining eternal life. And as we compare these two, and contrast these two, I think we see some very significant differences that teach us something critically important about the nature of genuine saving faith. So let's compare the two. First of all, the rich ruler, Luke chapter 18, he asserted his goodness, asserted his own goodness. When Jesus laid out the commands which were intended to show us our need for the grace of God, the saving grace of God, he said, all these I've kept from my youth. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, recognized his own failures. Reflecting back the message David Holcomb did last week on the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, we see the, the need, the critically important need for humility for one to enter the kingdom of God. That is recognition of our need. Zacchaeus, in his time, because he was a tax collector, was probably despised by his fellow Jews. The rich ruler, on the other hand, was probably highly regarded, but lacking humility. Rich ruler asserted his goodness. Zacchaeus recognized his failures. Number two, the rich ruler recognized Jesus as good teacher. Zacchaeus recognized and acknowledged Jesus as Lord. And friends, there is a very big difference in recognizing Jesus as a good teacher, in recognizing him as Lord of all. There are many people who will acknowledge Jesus to have been a good moral teacher, even a prophet. 
but only when one knows him as personal Lord is there salvation. Night and day difference between believing Jesus was good, good person, good teacher, and knowing him as the Lord. One leads to salvation, the other does not. Thirdly, the rich ruler chose his wealth over following Jesus. Zacchaeus gave of his wealth as an expression of his changed heart. Notice now the very, very important connection between the devotion of our person's heart to the Lord and what we do with our money. Jesus taught this truth quite strongly, not only here but in other places as well, that the devotion of our hearts to his lordship has a lot to do with what we do with our wealth. The rich ruler was interested in eternal life. He called Jesus a good teacher, but when it came to giving up his wealth, he essentially said, no, God, not if it requires giving up my money. No. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, was saying to Jesus, your Lord, here's my life, money and all. Both passages involve money, both involve the Lord Jesus, and both teach us important truths about the nature of saving faith. And I'd like to look at at those truths just for a moment here. In the rich ruler in Zacchaeus, first of all, we see this. Saving faith, and by saving faith, I'm talking about faith that brings one into eternal life, into an eternal saving relationship with God, saving faith. Saving faith includes recognition of the Lordship of Jesus. Considering Jesus as a good person, a good teacher, a good historical uh, figure, a prophet, that will not save you. Knowing him as Lord will. That's why the apostle Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And the implication is you're saying Jesus is my Lord. And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Secondly, in the rich ruler in Zacchaeus, we see that saving faith includes recognition of our sin, our need for God's forgiveness. The ruler, when confronted with the commandments, says, I've kept them all. Ever since I was young, I've always kept all the commandments. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, says, I'm ready to start making amends for my failures. Anybody I've defrauded, I want to pay it back fourfold. Saving faith includes the recognition of our need, our, our, our sin our need for God's forgiveness. To see our sin properly, we really have to see it in light of who God is. People I've talked to over the years about their spiritual life, I find oftentimes they think of themselves in relation to their, in their own goodness, in their lack of sin, by comparison with other people. 
And most of us, if we compare ourselves to the general population, our goodness, we would probably stack up fairly well. I'm sure the rich ruler, compared to the average citizen who thought he'd kept all the commandments, he probably stacked up pretty well. But nowhere does the Bible teach that in regard to eternity, we're evaluated on the basis of our comparison with other people. Rather, in terms of our standing before God, we're evaluated on the basis of comparison with the glory of God, the perfection of God. That's why Paul says, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By the standard of his perfection, we all fall short. That's why Jesus gave those commandments to the rich ruler. He was trying to help him along. The Apostle Paul says the law, including these Ten Commandments, is like a school teacher intended to bring us to Christ. He said, I wouldn't have known what it meant to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's why Jesus uses the law to expose our need so he can bring us to reliance upon his grace. Saving faith includes a recognition of our sin, our need for God's forgiveness. Thirdly, we see this. In the rich ruler in Zacchaeus, we see that saving faith includes repentance. The willingness to turn from sin and idols to the lordship of Jesus Christ. One man walked away sad, retaining all of his wealth, all his money. The other man turned away from his sin and he turned to the Lord. And that's what repentance is. Essentially, it is a, a turning. In biblical usage, a turning from our sin, our self-sufficiency to the Lordship of Christ. It's turning in need to him, recognition of our sin, turning away from it, turning to Jesus. Repentance is connected with faith throughout the teaching of the New Testament by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Peter. For example, Jesus, after he rose from the dead and was ascending back to heaven, he gave a commission to his disciples, and he said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance is a vital part of saving faith. And then finally, in the rich ruler in Zacchaeus, we see this. Saving faith has fruit, the evidence of genuine faith. Now, it's important to grasp this in the account of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not saved because of his giving. It wasn't his giving that saved him. The giving was merely the fruit of his genuine faith in Jesus as Lord. It was the immediate evidence of a heart that had been changed by the presence and the knowledge of Jesus. His giving was the result of a changed heart. It was merely fruit. It was merely evidence. And the teaching of the Bible 
is that saving faith does have fruit, evidence of genuine faith. Sometimes it's immediate, like with Zacchaeus. Sometimes it's gradual over time. You see your life gradually changing as you have put faith in Jesus Christ. But ultimately, saving faith has fruit. Our giving of our money, our good works, our good deeds, our service in the church, our praying, our help for the poor, our, our good works cannot save us. That's why Jesus said to the rich ruler, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Only God can save us, and this based on the work of Jesus on the cross for us. If our giving of our money could save us, why would Jesus have needed to die on the cross and bear the judgment for our sins there? If any of our works could save us, why would the Son of God have had to do that? No, we can't save ourselves. We can give away all our money and give away our lives. We can't save ourselves apart from faith in Jesus who gave his life to redeem us, to bring us to God. But when we have given our lives to him, there will be fruit. There will be evidence. Saving faith has fruit. So let me just try to recap these four, four things real quickly here. Saving faith includes recognition of the lordship of Jesus. Saving faith includes recognition of our sin, our need for God's forgiveness. Saving faith includes repentance, the willingness to turn from sin and idols to the lordship of Jesus. And saving faith has fruit, the evidence of genuine faith. And so, I would ask you this question today. Or rather suggest you ask yourself this question. Is my relationship to Jesus more like that of the rich ruler or Zacchaeus? Critically important question. I think the Holy Spirit led Luke to put these two passages right together like he did so we could answer that question. Is my relationship to Jesus more like that of the rich ruler or Zacchaeus? Let's pray about that together for Mama. Father, these are challenging words in Scripture. And we know that you've given them to us because you desire to bring us into a deeper devotion to yourself. I pray for each and every person here today and for each person watching online that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to us, God, if there is anything standing in the way of our devotion to Jesus as Lord, we ask that you would remove it. We ask that you would enable us, like Zacchaeus, to sincerely call you Lord. And we pray that our faith would have fruit, genuine fruit, evidence of your saving work. Lord, be at work among us this day, we ask. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.